Cognitive Thought and Immediate Experience by J. A. Layton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cognitive Thought and Immediate Experience by J. A. Layton. In a former discussion, I maintained that the genesis and plausibility of some recent metaphysical realisms were due to a confusion between the psychological and the logical treatment of thought. In the present discussion, I shall endeavor to point out that the doctrine known as pure or immediate empiricism derives its plausibility in part from the same confusion. There is indeed today a widespread tendency to hypostatize experience, to regard it as the all-comprehending reality of which men and things are elements from which thought sets out on its reflective quest and into which, in the end, it is somehow absorbed. But one does not find a distinction made and kept between experience as actual and personal and experience as possible. What in strict logic holds only of the latter is asserted of the former and vice versa. This treatment of experience one finds with varying contexts in Bradley and his disciples and in Professors Dewey and James. It is with the views of the latter two alone that I shall be herein concerned. Professor James tells us that a physical object, e.g. his pen, is an experience which may be taken in two contexts. One, in the personal context of my or your experience. Two, as a pure experience or pen experience in itself. The pen experience, we are told, in its original immediacy is not aware of itself. It simply is, etc. Footnote. This journal, volume 1, pages 538, 566, etc. Volume 2, page 180, etc. End footnote. Now, what does this latter expression mean? I have some notion of the existence of a physical object when no one thinks it. I have even a glimmering notion of what it might mean for the pen's existence to depend on the thought of an all-thinker. But I can frame no intelligible notion of what a pen is as a bit of pure physical experience which no person has and which has itself no feeling. Surely, it can only conduce to confusion of thought to apply the term experience to anything that actually figures in no consciousness. Footnote. Ibid. Volume 2, page 181, etc. In footnote. If the personal quail be eliminated from experience, there is nothing left but the bare possibility of experience. And surely it is a mistake to call an unconscious possibility experience. Words should have some sort of definite meaning, even in philosophy. And the following definition of experience taken from the Century Dictionary states the actual historical meaning of the term and brings out its personal quail. The state or fact of having made trial or proof, or of having acquired knowledge, wisdom, skill, etc., by actual trial or observation, personal and practical acquaintance with anything. The consequence of the loose use of this term experience is that so short and easy a road is found to some all-comprehending unity of experience. We are told by James that the sum total of experience is a pure experience on an enormous scale, undifferentiated and undifferentiable into thought and thing. Footnote, Ibid, Volume 2, page 181. End footnote. Now this sum total of experience, this pure experience, either is had by some psychic center or it is not. In the latter case, we are landed in a mist, I was about to say mysticism, which is fatal to clear thinking. 
We are told that experiences are confluent, etc. Now, qua experience, my psychic life is uniquely and unshareably my own. As experiencing centers, in the sea of life enisled, with echoing straits between us thrown, dotting the shoreless watery wild, we mortal millions live alone. The interrelations of selves, the common truth in the social activity, doubtless do refer to common or over-individual conditions or implications of experience. But these common conditions must transcend any actual experience. Footnote. When Professor James says that experience itself, taken at large, can grow by itself, that it proliferates by continuous transitions, etc., does he mean in the individual or is he talking about the totality of experience? End footnote. I do not get my individual experiences by taking a slice out of a social or cosmic common sensorium, nor can I without further ado logically pool my experience in a social pot. Professor Dewey does not assume that experience is a comprehensive flux or matrix in which all separate experiences meet and blend. Experience for him is always determinate. Footnote. Ibid. Volume 2. Page 393. FF. End footnote. Every experience is a real thing, and every change in experience is a change in reality. Determinate experiences are conterminous with things. There are just as many reals as there are experiences. He says that when I am frightened by a noise, that is one experience or thing. And when I discover that the cause of the noise is the flapping of the window blind, that is another real thing. And when I see Zollner's lines as convergent, they really are convergent. When the experience is corrected, we have a new real. Now, of course, all my experiences, whether judgments, true or false, hallucinations, emotions, good and bad, and whatnot, are actual in the sense of having psychical existence. The plausibility of Professor Dewey's contention that reality equals immediate experience is due to the paralogism of identifying the psychically existent with the total reality, actual with possible experience. In logic, as I have previously insisted, reality is primarily that which judgment means or refers to. In the Zollner line illusion, my experience as cognitive gets the wrong reference. My percept does not mean what I take it to mean. And I reconstruct or transform this particular bit of cognitive experience by a reference to other conditions of the perception, i.e. by reference to a more systematized experience of reality. Similarly, when I discover the cause of the noise, I may not alter at all the fact of the window blind wind blowing. I make a new judgment by a systematic reference and so alter my personal state. In such cases, we rectify our cognitive relations, not the external reality. These rectifications mean that the references of our meanings to the reality, which has not changed, must be altered in order that cognition may work. Professor Dewey insists that any experience is determinate. He says the vague impression of something in the dark is as good a reality as the self-luminous vision of an absolute. But it isn't if it does not work as well. If I take this vague impression for a soft couch, and it turns out to be a coil of hot steam pipes or a bathtub, I do not consider my former judgment to be good. I say it was an erroneous experience, and the steam pipes are and were real all the time. Professor Dewey insists that to find the meaning of any philosophic concept, we must go to experience. True. But how? To whose experience, and how shall experience be controlled? We must think in order to make experience yield its fruitage. And because it fails to yield complete fullness and harmony, our thought must continue ever to transcend actual experience in its own interests. 
The urge and stress of thinking is born of the partial failure and partial promise of actual experience. Professor Dewey says that the method of immediate empiricism is identical in kind with that of the scientist. But the scientist is continually remaking experience, and by thought constructions transcending the actual. The all-pervading frictionless massless fluid and the electric corpuscles of the physicist certainly transcend immediate experience. Actual experience, which always belongs to a self, and hence is not a substantive reality, does not stand self-sufficient on its own feet. If every determinate experience did so stand, like Professor James's pure pin experience, unconscious and absolute in its own right, of course there would be no occasion for thought's corrective and supplementary work. Things would be just what they seem, even when there was no one for them to seem to. The sun would go round the earth. There would be two marbles when the fingertips are crossed in the Aristotelian experiment, two moons in the sky for the extreme devotees of Bacchus, etc. The strictly theoretical parts of physical science abound in thought constructions, by which actual experience is corrected, made more consistent, supplemented. Of course, the value of these constructions has reference to a possible self-consistent or complete experience, but this is an ideal which becomes actualized only in part. And even in the case of a perfect possible experience, if we do not presuppose an experiencing center or self, we are assuming an unconscious experience had by no one. Such a conception seems to me to have about as much meaning as wooden iron. In short, pure or immediate experience is the hypostatization of the psychological abstraction of consciousness or experience in general. It is legitimate for the psychologist to treat consciousness as a fact by itself, but is it legitimate to assert that experience is the bedrock of reality, apart from whether any self has consciousness of it or not? And if we stick to the personal quail of experience, all philosophical concepts will not be found on the same level or yield their meanings in the same terms. So-called immediate experience is simply the indifferent starting point for all philosophy as for all science and rational activity. But it is shot through and through with mediacy, and it is the function of reflective thought to justify the element of mediacy in each specific case. Our immediate experiences are being constantly corrected by thought. This is notoriously the case with perceptual experience. But it is quite as true that aesthetic, personal, and religious experiences do not yield their full fruitage without the interpreting and transforming activity of cognition, an activity that does its work by developing the element of mediation already there and without which experience would be a meaningless brute datum. Just herein lies the dynamic and constructive quality of thought. The vital function of thought consists in submitting immediate experiences to reflective treatment by which they are made to yield up to thought interpretation of their meanings and submit to control and transformation at the hands of thought. Mere thought is not life, but thought's contribution to life consists in interpreting, transforming, harmonizing, and supplementing actual experiences. This work logical thinking performs just because it is not a mere psychological existent on a dead level with every sort of grain and smut that may be grist for the psychological mill. In the performance of this work, Cognitive thinking transcends a mere psychical existence and reaches beyond actual experience. It develops implications in regard to the real that are required to render more consistent and harmonious actual experiences that are in themselves fragmentary. These implications, we may say, refer to some self's possible experiences, but they are not now convertible, and we may not understand the conditions under which they may become convertible into the current coin of our immediate experiences. 
In this sense, reality for thought that goes to the bitter end must include implications that are only possible experiences. Every immediate experience has, without further consideration, whatever reality may belong to any psychical process. In this sense, cognition is just one element in experience. But when we remind ourselves that thought as psychological fact and thought as valid meaning or reference are two different things, and that it is in the latter sense alone that thought in its dynamic actuality is adequately conceived, we shall not make the mistake of putting cognition on a level with other psychical facts and so eliminating its transcendent reference. The psychological treatment of thought is responsible for the assumption that reality equals experience. It is one thing to say, experience is real, and of course all experience is real, in the sense of being actual psychical process, although we hardly need a new philosophy to convey this very obvious bit of information, and quite another thing to say that all reality is immediate experience. Our immediate experiences, cognitive and non-cognitive, are often misleading, fragmentary, and inharmonious. Reality in the fullest sense means the objective system of conditions in relation to which these experiences make it corrected, enlarged, harmonized. Of course, thought must make a difference to reality, both extra-experiential and intra-experiential, and some reality must be of the sort to which thought can make a difference. Thought both transforms experience and alters some element in reality, so making way for a readjustment of experience. Of what sort this reality must be, so to undergo the action of thought is a question remaining over, the metaphysical problem of logic. In his latest discussion, footnote, this journal, volume 2, pages 707 to 711, end footnote, Dewey lays emphasis on the end state of knowledge as saturated with emotion. Knowledge mediates activities whose aims are the development of emotional substrates or continua into perfect feeling harmonies, moral, aesthetic, personal. Now it seems to me perfectly true that the goal of a completed cognition is always a personal state suffused with emotional coloring. But I should deny that the differentiae of cognitive feeling are reducible to moral and aesthetic terms. Since all higher feeling is a reaction of the unity of self to a content, cognition involves feeling, and the articulation of knowledge is the articulation of feeling. But I should maintain that the personal feeling which accompanies any relatively complete insight in science or philosophy may have a unique quail due to the specific character of the cognitive reaction. In other words, Cognitive feeling may be and often is sui generis, i.e. not reducible to moral, aesthetic, or religious terms. And I should agree with the contention that thought has always personal reference while insisting that pragmatism ignores the ontological implications of this reference. Thought is never wholly external to any personal experience. Pure experience, devoid of thought, is a grinsbegriff. There are two chief desiderata in the epistemological treatment of experience. 1. The explication of the chief logical stages through which, in the individual and the race, experience passes by the action of reflective thinking, and which stages run, of course, from a beginning in which thought is inchoate to a relative conclusion in which it has become definitely articulated. 2. The explication of the objective or universal implications of the individual's having experience. This is the problem of the definition of an environing world or reality, social and physical. The fact that my experience is uniquely my own, as well as determinate, does not abolish, but rather sets a metaphysical problem. 
We are repeatedly told that pragmatic empiricism is a new method of treating philosophical concepts. But so far we have been given only vague generalities, and those of us who are not convinced thereby are told that it is because we are irretrievably mired in the bog of transcendentalism. By their fruits ye shall know them. Let the pragmatical or immediate empiricists give us a thoroughgoing treatment by their method of one or two fundamental philosophical concepts, substance, causality, thinghood, selfhood, etc., and then perhaps the actual demonstration of the pragmatic uses of this method will let light into our skulls. In the meantime, perhaps one may be pardoned for the perversity of holding on to a point of view which seems both to be more in harmony with the whole procedure and function of reflective thought and to have yielded some definite results. And I will be specific and say that I mean that the philosophies of Kant, Fichte, and Hegel have yielded definite results in rendering the actual world more intelligible in terms of an idealistic footnote. When I use the term idealism without qualifying phrase, I mean metaphysical, not epistemological or psychological idealism. End footnote. Rendering of experience. End of Cognitive Thought and Immediate Experience by J. A. Layton.